Hi, I'm Andrea Cates, and you're listening to Leadership Biz Cafe. Hi, everyone. This is Tanvir Nasir, and on today's episode of Leadership Biz Cafe, I'll be talking with Andrea Cates. Andrea is the founder of the Business Genome Project and has led more than 250 business innovation initiatives with a variety of organizations, including Audi, Allstate, J.P. Morgan Chase, and OnStar. In her best-selling book, Find Your Next, Using the Business Genome Process to Find Your Company's Next Competitive Edge, Andrea reveals the necessary elements organizations need to fuel their next innovation in today's competitive global market. Hi, Andrea. Welcome to the show. Great to be on the show. Innovation is certainly a hot-button issue these days, but it also seems to be something that draws a lot of confusion about what exactly it takes to be considered innovative. Given the focus of your work, how would you define or describe what it takes for an organization to be innovative? Well, I actually think that innovation's gotten a really bad rap recently because people expect everyone in the organization to suddenly be Steve Jobs. People think that there are certain types of people that have special DNA to be innovative. And in some cases, it actually intimidates people because they think, well, I'm not one of those innovative people. You know, I'm not a creative type. My approach to innovation is based on business growth. And so I believe that there's a way that we can all as organizations, as companies, whether we're large companies, entrepreneurs, nonprofits, government, whatever, we can all train ourselves to have innovation in our organization's DNA so that we look at information, we look at opportunities with what could be versus just the microscope of what is. One of the first chapters of your book, you talk about something that for people who read a lot about innovation, they've probably come across, and that's the idea of pattern thinking, where you look at a business model uh, in a completely unrelated field to learn what works for them and then how you can apply some of what makes them successful onto your model. Uh, in fact, I read recently uh, the example of how the Cool Ranch Doritos product came to be. Uh, when they were trying to figure out what they were going to do as their next product, they went to the grocery store, and they didn't go to the snack food aisle, which is where you would think you'd go to go see what the competition is doing, what's succeeding there. Instead, they found themselves gravitating towards the salad dressing aisle. And they started looking to see what flavor profiles were really popular. And they, they noticed how many different brands were trying to sell the consumer their version of ranch dressing. And they said, wow, this must be a really popular flavor profile because there's so many companies who are competing for this one flavor in this large industry of salad dressing. So they thought, well, what if we were to combine this clear interest and market and a love for this flavor profile of ranch dressing with our chips. And obviously, as we all know, that gave rise to the Cool Ranch Doritos, which is one of their most successful products. Now, on the other hand, had they gone what we usually think of the usual route, where you can compare what your competition is doing, you know, they probably would have been looking at barbecue, salt and vinegar, those types. So in a way, that's kind of what you're referring to when you talk about innovation. That's not so much about creativity as it is the way we approach our business and where we look for growth. Well, what's hard is that what we are taught in business school and what we do a lot of times in companies is we're asked to do benchmarking. We're yeah. asked specifically to do forecast models based on our peers. 
we're taught to look at competition based on our category. So the example of looking at chips, if you're a chip company, is exactly what our frame of mind is going into any sort of competitive analysis. What is different about the genomic approach or this find your next approach is the idea of whether it's pattern thinking, I call it cross industry insights. So that as you see something emerging, as you mentioned with the potato chips looking at salad dressing, the example that I start with in the book is the, is the idea of Pennzoil and oil and looking at other oil companies probably would have never gotten them very far other than looking at thicker oil, more viscosity in the oil, lots of things about the oil. But if you suddenly in, put insert the Starbucks experience of being able to hang out and have Wi-Fi and have a really comfortable environment where you want to spend time, you add that to the notion of oil and an oil change, suddenly you can give rise to Jiffy Lube, which is a completely different way of looking at just oil. It has nothing to do with just the oil and the viscosity. It has to do with the whole end-to-end -end experience of getting your oil changed. So they were able to move into a completely new part of their category, really define new space, rather than thinking of themselves against ExxonMobil or Chevron or Texaco, they actually could look at a whole experience of getting your oil changed and instead of going into a dirty garage and having to wait uncomfortably and waste a lot of time away from the office, here you are comfortably in a great environment with a good customer experience, that's exactly what really leapfrogs you forward against your competition. Now, for organizations that are interested and want to get started in using pattern thinking to help them figure out their next offering or where they need to go next, let's talk about the basis of your book, the Find Your Next Approach, which you describe as involving four distinct steps, the first being to sort, then match, hybridize, and finally adapt and align. Could you take us through this process so we can better understand what's involved in these steps and how they can help businesses with discovering these new opportunities? Well, let's think about the way that we've been trained to sit in a strategy room. So we'll start with a SWOT analysis. What are our strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats? We look in the rearview mirror. We bring lots of reports. We look a lot at our microscopes. You know, who are we? We look at data. But what that doesn't lead to is what should we do next? And so these four steps were designed not for analysis of the past only, but for discovery of where the next double digit growth could come from. It doesn't necessarily add up that by doing last year faster and better, you're going to end up with double digit growth. So when you need to find another area, what you can do is Number one, sort where you are, not from a SWOT analysis, but really what, as you said, with the potato chips, what is it that we're trying to do? We're trying to get people to crave the flavor profile of what we have to offer, for instance. So then it's th what you said about the potato chips is exactly the next step. You match. You don't match potato chip to potato chip, but you match craveable flavor profile. What are the craveable flavor profiles? Is it chocolaholics? Is it this salad dressing example, you know, where are the craveable flavor profiles? And that's what you start matching, not necessarily your silo of potato chip to potato chip. Then the notion of hybridizing is, you know, what is it? Let's use your, your Cool Ranch example. What is it about that flavor profile and our chip that could marry together 
so that people would crave our chips the same way that they might have been craving the ranch dressing. And then the notion of adaptation is if your organization doesn't embrace the change and is still going back to the old flavor profile and never really makes that leap. So for instance, with my Jiffy Lube example, if people are still thinking viscosity instead of thinking customer experience, if they don't think about the lighting and the music and the really great atmosphere and the Wi-Fi, then they've missed the opportunity to really take advantage of this quote innovation, you know, this idea of looking across industries today at what's in plain view to see what the future should be. And to me, that those four steps completely transform the mindset from, first of all, SWOT analysis as the way to discover something new. And also the idea of where does your next idea come from if you've done absolutely everything you could to a potato chip? Where couldn't your next idea come from? It always comes from an adjacent or an unrelated field if you think about it. When it comes to sorting and matching, you describe a number of factors that you refer to as the business genome elements, one of which you identify as talent, leadership, and culture. In that chapter, you make the point that those organizations which foster a culture that communicates a shared sense of purpose are the most successful. Now, could you elaborate on how creating a culture and leadership that emphasizes a shared sense of purpose impacts an organization's ability to innovate? So there are two things about talent and culture. I'm going to start with recruiting, which isn't how you started it. But how do you even get the, the fabulous people to want to be part of your culture to begin with? And I think that that's really a very important part of the talent, leadership and culture, because you have to think about what it is about your company that's going to attract the A players, the people that really want to be part of your organization and not settle for, well, let's just recruit from people just like us. You know, if we're a financial services organization, let's recruit for other people in financial services and, and do things the traditional way. My thinking is that it's time for us to look, especially at millennials and some new ways of attracting talent that are not necessarily what our peers are doing. So for instance, there was a large global uh, real estate company that was at first looking at other large real estate companies for where they could attract, how they could attract talent. And one day the senior leaders were sitting around and said, wait a minute, why are we settling for that? If what we're looking for is a culture, is a culture that can be really an infectious enthusiasm, have a high buzz factor, have people that are dying to come into work in the morning, what's a company or what's an organization that does that really well? And instead of just looking at real estate companies, they said, what about the Brazilian soccer league? It's actually called the football league, the Brazilian football league. And it was kind of a joke at first, but then they started thinking, wait a minute, what is that component, that sort of genetic element, you know, makeup, that pattern that they've got that maybe is mojo, you know, something really incredible that makes people you know, people are dying to be part of the Brazilian Football League. What could we learn from that that we could then implant on our culture so that we create the kind of organization that has top talent, a great feeder system, the A-team players, a tremendous sense of enthusiasm, and and start to craft a culture that that mirrors something outside of your industry as a role model? Well, I think what we're seeing now is a recognition that we need to move past simply focusing on skills, which can be learned and developed over time, to looking for people who get what our culture or purpose is all about 
because this does play a key role in how we communicate and understand the relevance of our contributions. Exactly. And, and there's another level to this. I mean, we have to be honest about the fact that we live in a glass house these days. There's no such thing as the company walls being the four walls. In Starbucks, when Howard Schultz wrote in Onward, the notion of having a memo that was, quote, leaked. Well, in the old days, you know, these leaks were very uncommon and you would get in a lot of trouble. And he had a wake up call and said, wait a minute, we're living in a very transparent world now. Anything that goes out is going to be shared somehow, some way. And so rather than trying to put up the walls and the fortress around this and control it, we have to accept and adapt to this world of the crowd. And I believe that that's the other kind of good side of, of the social media world and the notion of transparency is everybody, whether it's our customers, our suppliers, learns quickly that they can have input into our companies and our brands, whether it's a dry cleaner that's in the neighborhood or a food truck that's on a local level or whether it's a large restaurant chain. The, the consumer and the customer is part of this whole conversation now. And that's also, I think, part of the culture is the way that we embrace social media and messaging and how authentic we are, how open we are, I think is, is really a, a very, can be a very powerful part of our, our brands moving forward as we build the kinds of cultures that are going to be open to people having opinions and, and being honored by those, having those opinions honored. In addition to transparency, another factor you point out as being critical to an organization's ability to innovate is the need for nimbleness that organizations be able to change their direction quicker when offerings are not well received and trying out another direction that would be a better match for what your target market is saying. Now, there's still this tendency to demand that we have proof first before committing ourselves to any change or new efforts. And I think this is one of the biggest challenges for most organizations. So how do we get organizations and their leaders to be more willing to cut their losses instead of pushing ahead in the hopes that their forecasts turn out to be true? I think that risk is what everybody's really afraid of. There's risk in doing nothing that's, never fact, that's rarely factored into the equation. So you can always identify clearly the risk of doing something, the risk of changing course, the risk of what if it doesn't go well. But how, how high is the volume on the question of the risk of doing nothing? And complacency or the assumption that last year is going to turn into next year would never have worked for GE, a very large company, very, you know, multi-billion dollar bet that they made on eco-imagination, trying to figure out should they or should they not explore the world of sustainability? Was this just a passing fad? And in the book also, there's, there's the, a, a story that Mark Vachon told that I thought was so interesting because here's a large company. You can understand a small company being nimble, a small company being willing to take the risk because entrepreneurs are used to that. But for a large company like GE to look at eco-imagination as a very serious multiple billion dollar investment, they had to understand that just being the same kind of manufacturer they had been in the past was not going to cut it. And they couldn't just keep waiting for an economy to turn around. They couldn't, they had to decide is the sustainability a trend or is it something that really has long-term traction with, the, with the, the customers that we'll be serving over the next 10 to 50 years? And so they realized that you ha they had to change. They had to evolve. They had to embrace this new concept, 
Or if they didn't adapt, they were basically going to become a dinosaur. They wouldn't be relevant anymore. So when a company as large as GE does this exact same approach and embraces it, of course, the, the entrepreneurial examples are there. You know that this is the tide of the future. This is the wave of the future and that we all have to learn to be responsive because overnight somebody can come and change our business model overnight, whether it's Netflix, whether it's Blockbuster. These changes happen so quickly that we have to be on alert and have to be able to be very adaptive versus very sure of what the future will be. In essence, what companies need to do then is to shift their focus from trying to create certainty for what's to come and work instead to build the ability to respond and adapt to what's happening now, which will direct what's happening next. Exactly. And, and to me, what's common sense about this is everyone says, can you predict the future? And the answer is no. But if you use a periscope instead of a rearview mirror, you can see today from looking at the innovations already happening in all these other fields, whether it's salad dressing, as you mentioned, whether it's Wi-Fi in a Starbucks, whether it's e-commerce with Zappos, whatever it is, we see it today in plain view exactly what tomorrow is going to look like. So why not embrace it and have our organizations be able to grow double digits as a result of that approach? Oh, I love the Periscope visual. I think that draws the perfect image of what leaders and their organizations need to do to become a more innovative. And with that, I'd like to thank you, Andrea, for taking the time today to share your thoughts on innovation. I think there's little question that the demands and pressures from a global market require organizations to think more proactively about where they're headed and what opportunities may be untapped or underserved. And I hope our conversation today has helped to shed some light on how leaders can start and maintain this process in their organizations. Thank you so much, Andrea. I so great to talk to you. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I've been talking with Andrea Cates about her book, Find Your Next, Using the Business Genome Approach to Find Your Company's Next Competitive Edge. To learn more about her book and her approach to fostering innovation, visit the webpage for this episode at tavernasir.com. And that concludes this episode of Leadership Biz Cafe. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And as always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed in this episode, as well as what topics you'd like to hear in future episodes of this show. You can do this by leaving a comment on this episode's webpage or by filling out the contact form at tanvinasir.com. Until next time, this is Tanvin Nasir. Thanks, everyone, for listening.